Episode 495 is a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we got a very special episode because Brian Saar, a.k.a. Bob Friedlander, a.k.a. Rupert <laughs> Pupkin, the co-host of the Pure Cinema Podcast and the host of the Just the Discs Podcast, is here to talk about the careers of two of the funniest guys in the history of showbiz, Abbott and Costello. We're going to do the deep dive and tackle their entire career, but placing special emphasis on Brian's favorite flicks that they ever made. But Mr. Saar, welcome back to Wrong Reel. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much, James, for having me back. I appreciate it, man. I always feel like I'm in like the eye of Sauron when I talk to you because of that name. <laughs> but the, that last name is very intimidating. <laughs> I'm quite that way. Yeah, but before we get into any Abbott and Costello, I want to pause real quick and shower you with love and affection for your show, Pure Cinema Podcast, because this past summer, y'all posted an episode that I regard as one of the probably top five podcasts I've ever listened to on any topic, where y'all did the deep dive with uh, Tarantino prior to the release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Listened to it several times, and it was such an invaluable resource in terms of understanding all the different films that informed his approach to writing that screenplay, but also just in terms of my own appreciation of the movie, I feel like like you could walk into that movie and just enjoy it, or you can watch 100 movies in the period and just see it in a completely different light. And I was just in awe of what y'all put together, and I feel like it's kind of the gold standard by which a lot of film podcasts should uh, measure themselves. I just wanted to give you a huge high five for that amazing episode. Well, I you know I, I can thank you, and I do appreciate it, but I mean, it's all about him, man. I mean, he, he is something special in person, for sure. I mean, I will say it's one of the most prepared I've ever been for any episode of a podcast I've ever done. So... You know, we came into the room just knowing the movies and being prepared to talk to him. Um, But, you know, he just got into it in a way that we didn't 
even expect. I mean, he sat with us for like two and a half hours or something, and that was one of the highlights of my life. So uh, the fact that it turned out to be a show that you can listen to and that can inform your experience for watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is still, um, I mean, biased or not, my favorite film of the year by a large margin. It was mine as well. Uh, you know, um, that that was just a, a hell of an uh, experience for us. So I'm so glad you enjoyed it, man. Yeah, it's funny how Tarantino keeps talking about like flirting with retirement. Obviously, I just hope he'll make a lot of TV shows if he plans on retiring from feature filmmaking at some point. But he seems to really enjoy the podcasting format. I listened to Bill Simmons' show, uh, Rewatchable. He did three episodes with Tarantino recently. And Tarantino came with so much enthusiasm. And the fact that Bill Simmons kind of has like these unique categories for analyzing, dissecting the movies. And you could tell that Tarantino had been listening to previous episodes because he was making fun of the fact that Aaron Sorkin had shown up and kind of <laughs> didn't understand like like the rules. And I was like, wow, like Tarantino is like a, almost like, you can just feel the enthusiasm just beaming through. And I hope at some point, if he ever does retire from making shows or movies, that he'll just do thousands of podcast appearances because he has so much knowledge and so much expertise. And he makes you look at movies in a completely different light. I just feel like, it would be a crime to deprive people of all those insights. So I hope he'll continue to be a regular podcast. Almost like how like Orson Welles toward the end of his life was always on the Merv Griffin show. I hope Tarantino would just keep popping up on podcasts for the next 30, 40 years. You and me both, brother. I really, I loved those rewatchables episodes. Um, I think that show is okay. Uh, but with him on the show, I was like, wow, this is, this is fantastic. Hearing him go on about Tony Scott in the, uh, unstoppable episode and then Abel Ferrara in the King of New York. I was just yeah. in heaven, in I mean, heaven. King of New York is one of my all time faves. And to hear him do the deep dive on that, because that's, that's kind of the last period before Tarantino went pro. I guess with like Reservoir Dogs, he was already obviously writing tons of scripts at that point, but that period is the last time where he was just going to the movies and just freaking out as a hardcore fan. And so we're getting our last glimpse of his development as just a cinephile before he becomes a full-blown professional filmmaker. And you can just tell he kind of reverts back to just being a like early 20s, mid-20s kind of film geek. And so it was fun just seeing him really just rant and rave on that. I feel like Abel Ferrara does doesn't nearly get nearly as much attention as he deserves. He's one of the greats in that period. For sure, for sure. But yeah, I I hope he does more podcasts. I, I'm with you. Well, get him to come on y'all's show like like once every We're couple trying. months. I mean, I feel like... <laughs> uh, so for people who have not heard your show, explain how the Pure Cinema Podcast and the New Beverly are connected. Um, well, I mean, we had started the show. We're coming up on three years. Shit, next month. Um, and... Uh, we joined up with the New Beverly. We have a friend, Phil Blankenship, who does socials for the New Beverly, uh, and he's a film programmer. And he expressed interest in the show at one point, saying that the New Bev was looking for a podcast. And we said, yes, we would love to do that. We love the theater. We love what you do. And um, so then um, my partner, Elric, had come up with the idea of initially doing a calendar episode where we literally – did like a YouTube video audio version of just opening the calendar up and reacting to it. And then that sort of has morphed into a much more involved um, going through the calendar, getting a guest and things like that. And it's, you know, it's, it's our sort of connection to the theater. Um, so we like to open the calendar up when it's ready and talk about every movie that's programmed in a given month as a document to like the programming that Quentin is doing, the programming that some of the other folks at the new Beverly are doing. And 
just kind of put the word out. Like it's great for people that are in LA and that's what it's kind of for, but also just to kind of show people around the world, like, Hey, this is what's being programmed here. Check out these movies on your own if you can, because I mean, Quentin's programming him. Like who wouldn't want to check that stuff out? You know? Yeah. I lived in LA from 99 to 06 and I love the new Beverly. I was even went to the new Beverly on the night of nine 11 with Becky Deanna. We were kind of like, Whoa. let's run and hide from the horrors of uh, reality. Let's go watch Raul Walsh's white heat. Like why not? Like, so I mean the new Beverly, it was a, a great place, but I've never been able to see the new Beverly in action since Tarantino took over. And my understanding is that they've, up their game because <laughs> when I used to go there, you know, it was five bucks for a double feature. The floors were really sticky. The place smelled kind of bad, and uh, I don't know like what it's like that these days. But my, my knowledge of that place is fourteen years out of date. But I just I saw some of my favorite double features ever there, and I saw a lot of films like Barry Lyndon and Thirty Five Millimeter there, and a lot of my best. A lot of my favorite movies that I discovered ever were as a result of going to the New Beverly because their programming, even before Tarantino, has always been second to none. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's an institution. I remember seeing Swingers in the late 90s and before I moved to L.A. myself and and seeing that New Beverly calendar on John Favreau's fridge and being like, oh, wow, look at that. And yeah, it's become I mean, since Quentin took over, I mean, I don't want to say it wasn't great before it was, but it's become better. And they really take a lot of pride in what they do. They've cleaned the place up, improve the sound system. They get you know, 35 prints struck for them a lot of times, like in the new calendar episode, which just went live. Um, we were talking about uncut gems, which is playing this month at the theater and they're getting a print struck for them, uh, for this run. And so it's a new print that's playing there. And that happens since 35 is so becoming so rare. Uh, a lot of directors will, you know, do deals with their studios to get a 35 print to play at the New Beverly, that kind of thing. You know, it's that special. So uh, I love that bit. Y'all talked about the Wild Bunch with Tarantino when he said that not only was his thir- the 35 millimeter print of the Wild Bunch the best print of the Wild Bunch he'd ever seen, but it's the best 35 millimeter print that exists like in- anywhere in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's really into that. And they and they do a lot of stuff with the prints where there's a lot of IB Tech prints. Quentin's really into that. So you get like really vibrant color you know maybe above blu-ray even quality you know they really want to encourage people to go out and see movies in the theater and i think that's the way to do it honestly these old films it's the best way yeah there are a couple theaters and a couple chains that get that the theatrical experience has to continue to evolve to remain relevant i feel like alamo draft house does a brilliant job of getting filmmakers to come in and having really interesting programming before the movie like when i saw mandy they had like a 30-minute highlight reel of all of Nicholas's cage, Nicholas Cage's like most famous freakouts. I was like, all right, you're, you're going above and beyond the call of duty to make the theatrical experience special. And I feel like as long as theaters continue to do that, then I will continue to show up. But then again, like I went and saw the other night um, uh, the Gretel and Hansel in, in a Times Square theater. And in the middle of the movie, like there's a guy on his phone, like just talking away. And like, it just, oh like, my God. Yeah. Like, like the Regal and AMC, like, like they don't get it. Like, I feel like they're locked in the past. But I feel like there's some theater chains I realize there's so much competition now. You really have to make it feel like you're going to a cathedral and make it really special, really fun. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears to a completely different topic to Abbott and Costello. Obviously, these are two of the biggest comedy giants in history. 1942, they're the biggest box office draws in the business. And obviously, you've got uh, Lou Costello trying to take a stab at things back in the silent era, but it's really in the 30s where they take over vaudeville, they take over burlesque, they take over radio, and eventually 
that take over Hollywood and their Hollywood career. It's incredible because they conquered every medium out there and they even eventually went into live TV. But I must admit that prior to preparing for this episode, I knew almost nothing about them apart from Abbott and Costello meet Frank Asana. It's one of the things where every time I wanted to be exposed to them, I would just watch that movie because I have a lot of sentimental affection for it. I caught it on TV when I was like four or five. Scared the shit out of me. But I was also fascinated. But it was my first exposure to the Universal Monsters. And it was kind of funny. And it's part of my sentimental love and affection for that period. But per your recommendation, I bought this giant <laughs> Universal <laughs> Blu-ray box set, which has all their Universal movies, which is basically their entire career, as well as some great documentaries on there as well. So I've been do, doing the, the deep dive. But before we get into the nuts and bolts and kind of into the weeds of their career, explain to people out there how you came to be such a massive fan of Abbott and Costello. Well, I got a little surprise for you in that I was... A fan of theirs, certainly, but until I got this box set, this is the Shout Factory box set from last year, um, I didn't know that much myself. I got to be honest. And that I was so inspired by this set. I mean, here's here's a slight digression. You know, like you said, I run a show called Just the Disc where I talk about Blu-rays and we do a show at the end of the year where we talk about our favorite le- releases of the year. And I think you know, Criterion gets plenty of love when they do a nice box set, rightfully so. But some of these other labels, Shout Factory in particular, but um, Indicator, we've already talked about an Indicator box set on Wrong Reel. Um, These other labels, they do these incredible box sets, and I don't think they get quite the attention they deserve. This Abbott and Costello box set is incredible. It's 28 films. It's like, I don't know, 15 discs or something. And there's commentaries, like you said, documentaries. It's incredible. It is so much, you know, history in a box that is worthy of the Criterion Collection. I know people love the Godzilla set. They love the uh, the Igmar Bergman set. This is on par with those. I just want people to know that up front. The only thing that's um, missing is some great poster art by Tony Stella. Like I love true. seeing, like when you see all these. Um, as you mentioned, there's so many boutique companies now creating all these great box sets, but seeing the ascent of Tony Sella over the last year or two, where he's increasingly in demand and doing more and more work, I'm like, all right, it's kind of cool seeing the world uh, sit up and take notice of the great Tony Sella. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I, I would love it if he got all the gigs in terms of this stuff, like his style and his abilities as an artist are unrivaled and I adore him. So that makes me very happy. Yeah, it'd be great to get that. But beyond that, this set is just amazing. So I, like you, was familiar with, you know, Meet Frankenstein and a few others. But this set has sort of allowed me an opportunity to do a deep dive. And you just, we were talking on Twitter and I just pitched you the idea and I appreciate you going for it. Because I was so inspired that I was like, I don't think this is going to happen on Pure Cinema. I, I would love to talk about this set and these movies. So I'm so glad you were down for it. But I think for me, um, you know, meet Frankenstein actually goes back to Tarantino because I remember when I was in college and finding lists of his favorite films, um, you know, you'd see the list that would have Rio Bravo and blowout and, uh, Taxi Driver, but Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein was also on that list, and he was a huge and is a huge fan of the movie, and I had never seen it at the time. I didn't know them at all, and I watched it, and I loved it, and you know, fast forward to years later, I start getting my kids into movies, and that, and I know I'm not the only one, that is one of the gateway movies to A, uh, black and white movies, B, 
uh, monster movies, uh, the universal monster movies of that, you know, great period and see um, comedy horror, which then can kind of segue into horror itself. So it's incredible in that respect as a gateway film. And they're just so funny. You know, I just think people underestimate how important they are because I think if we don't have Abbott and Costello, then we don't have Scooby Doo. And or without you don't Sco- have Jerry Seinfeld, who like immersed himself in these guys, he yeah. loved Abbott and Costello growing up. Oh, yeah, there's so much. I mean, but just in terms of like horror and horror comedy, which I think you know is a genre that I adore. And just horror gateway in general. Without Scooby Doo, I think a lot of kids and a lot of filmmakers don't get into horror because it's it's such an, a great way to get in. Um, but then you know they go on to influence you know other comedy teams like Martin and Lewis and uh, you know Smothers Brothers on up to Bert and Ernie and R two D two and C three PO, Young Frankenstein and Ghostbusters. I mean all these things I feel like have a line back to Abbott and Costello meet or Frankenstein. Like Clue where you have that blend of murder mystery and comedy. It's like, oh, well, these guys made like 50 of these kinds of movies. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that was something I learned in this box set was that, you know, they – They've done so many films. I think they did like 36 films. This box set has 28 of the 36. And they have just groups of films that they did. You know, they they did their, they started with their service comedies, like Buck Privates, In the Navy, Keep Them Flying, often with the Andrews Sisters. Then they did the monster movies, uh, Meet Frankenstein, Meet the Invisible Man, Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They had their murder mysteries, like Who Done It and Meet the Killer. And then Westerns, Ride em Cowboy, Wistful Widow of Wagon Gap. So they had this whole you know, variety of films that they made that they brought their comedy stylings to. And I just – the set overall suddenly gave me this greater appreciation for uh, a duo that I should have appreciated more anyway. So, Well, I'm always happy to give a shout-out to Shout Factory because in my dabblings in the world of animation <clears throat> with Bill Plimpton, uh, recently Shout Factory did a, uh, a set for Bill Plimpton. And so on that set – are uh, two shorts and one feature film where I've got my name attached to the producer. So I'm like, fuck yeah, Shout Factory. Like, nice. y- y'all are exposing my name to uh, to more people. So I- I'm uh, 100% drinking the-, the Shout Factory Kool-Aid and always happy to uh, shower them with as much love and affection as humanly possible. Nice. Well, for people out there who have never seen an Abbott Costello movie, and I imagine there are plenty out there because like i said prior to preparing for this episode i'd seen one of the who's on firsts like renditions and i'd seen abbott and castell meet frankenstein and i consider myself a bit of a movie fan so i'm assuming a lot of people out there are operating with incomplete knowledge i do want to give a bit of an overview but just to put in perspective like i didn't know this till last night in the 40s they reached commercial heights that really had not been reached by any comedic acts in the talkie era. They were bigger than the Marx Brothers. They were bigger than the Three Stooges. They were bigger than W.C. Fields. Like, it's funny, I've, I've, I've been watching the Marx Brothers on a loop for like tw- over 20 years now, same with W.C. Fields. And I, I, just, I always assumed that the Marx Brothers were the creme de la creme, but it never even occurred to me that perhaps there were guys who were even bigger in terms of popularity. <clears throat> but Abbott and Costello were the biggest goddamn thing in the 1940s by far. But let's talk about how they first get together because it seems like and this is what I learned from Seinfeld. This entire like decades and decades of comedy from vaudeville and from burlesque is basically cataloged and preserved by virtue of the fact that Adam Costello would reinterpret and reuse a lot of this material, make it their own. And when they first started making movies, they're like, all right, let's just take all of our best couple hundred bits that we've been honing and refining and just put them into the movies. 
So explain for people like the fabric from which they emerge when they discover each other in New Jersey. Yeah, I mean, like you said, it, it comes from burlesque comedy. That's definitely something I learned, too, is that, you know, Bud uh, comes from a showbiz family and the vaudeville background and started as a, I think, a box office ticket taker at a burlesque burlesque theater and ended up producing shows and then started to do um, burlesque comedy on stage and honed his act that way and then Lou Costello obviously went out to Hollywood and tried his hand at an, being an actor in the 30s and failed. And basically on his way back, he gets waylaid in Missouri, I think, and gets a job as a burlesque comic and ends up doing it for like eight years. Um, and they sort of encounter each other on the circuit, I think. And, and then people are saying, you, you guys should really get together. And it takes, you know, a while before it happens. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's really interesting to me that, you know, I, I you know, I know, you know, Lou Costello loved Charlie Chaplin. So there's certainly comedic inspiration from cinema prior, but it seems like, like you say, their bits are rooted in these old, you know, burlesque and vaudeville things. And they just sort of clean them up. They made them more, um, friendly to, you know, I guess general audiences. Yeah, they're definitely and, clean. Like burlesque was not necessarily clean because you had you know, strippers and uh, things like that. But they always had a clean act, which made it easier for them to make the switch. Exactly, and and so I think once they start developing that, I think that's the other thing too is that people don't think about it, and I didn't. Um, that when you see them in the movies doing these bits, I mean, this is stuff that they have worked on for literally like a decade plus sometimes. And so it's, and then they will reuse gags, uh, you know, in movies and such. And I don't mind that. I honestly think, you know, they say like, you know what, bad jokes die an early death or something like that. You know, the good ones stick around. And so I just feel like they just develop, they, they coming, coming from that place, I think, it's really interesting. Like the Marx Brothers, they started on stage and then brought their, you know, timing and honed, you know, comedic stylings into the cinema and people were just blown away by it, you know, but it, but it took years to get there, you know? Yeah. That's one thing Seinfeld kept pointing out. And I always like hearing comedians talking about another comedian, not in terms of like what's funny or what's not, because obviously what's funny is subjective and it's, the more, the more you try to explain a joke, the more it kind of can fall to pieces and becomes not funny at all, which is always the danger of doing podcasts about comedy. It's like, oh shit, like are we kind of ruining it by turning it into something academic? But with Seinfeld, he kept talking about their pinpoint timing, their precision, their tempo, the speed. When you watch Who's on First, and especially in the movie Naughty 90s from 1945, it's so fast and it's so complex. You know, strange may seem they give ball players nowadays very peculiar names. Funny names? Nicknames, pet not, names. Not as funny as my name, Sebastian Dinwiddie. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Funnier than that? Oh, absolutely, Whee! yes. Now, on the St. Louis team, we have uh, who's on first, what's on second. I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellas on the St. Louis I'm, team. I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Do you know the fellas' names? Yes. Well, then who's playing first? Yes. I mean, the fellas' name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base for St. Louis. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you who is on first. I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who is on first? Have you got a first baseman on first? Certainly. Then who's playing first? Absolutely. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. Why not? The man's entitled to it. Who is? Yes. 
So who gets it? Why shouldn't he? Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. <laughs> After all, the man earns it. Who does? Absolutely. Well, all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? Oh, no, no. What is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? That's what I'm trying to find out. Well, don't change the players. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy. What's the guy's name on first base? What's the guy's name on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking about him. How did I get on third base? You mentioned his name. If I mention a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? Stay off of first, will you? Well, what do you want me to do? Now, what's the guy's name on third base? Well, what's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. Well, I can't change their names. Will you please stay on third base, Mr. Broadhurst? Please. Now, what is it It's kind of awe-inspiring that they can even get through it in a single take without falling to pieces. Like, when I record my YouTube videos... I usually, like every 15 or 20 seconds, have to stop because I'm <laughs> stuttering or say something in an idiotic fashion. But when you see these guys, you, you're watching like a Swiss watch in action. It's so perfected and so well honed. They've just been sharpening that blade for so long that if you just want to see pure comedy technique, and it's, but it still feels fresh and spontaneous... I feel like that's the real value of Abin Costello. It seems like it's just total chaos, a lot of slapping and a lot of like Costello talking in this high pitched baby voice, like I'm a bad boy. Like there's a lot, of, a lot of chaos going on. But what you really are seeing is masters practicing their craft. Absolutely. I mean, I believe Mark's uh, Groucho Marx said that Bud Abbott was probably the greatest straight man of all time. And I'd like to. I'm not a big sports guy, but you know, the sports analogy you can make is that. You know, Bud is like a quarterback throwing the touchdown passes to Lou Costello, who's obviously incredible and one of the greatest comics ever in his own right. But without Bud, I feel like it's not quite the same. You know, Bud really is such an incredible and underrated, I think, part of the act. Agreed. It took me a couple movies, but suddenly I started to realize, like, oh, my God, like, Bud Abbott is actually funny as shit. It's just yeah. very different. Like. He just, even though he apparently was a very gentle, humble guy in person, he plays kind of a roughneck in these movies, and <laughs> he just I can watch him slap Costello all day and laugh equally hard each time he does it. And obviously, they are two parts of the same persona. You've got the serious, and he's you got like kind of the tall, kind of everyman, and then you got this fat, chubby little boy who never quite grows up. But they're such a great study in contrast. But if you separate them the comedy is diminished. They have to be together. And if you don't have, it's like having a great dance partner. When you've got Abbott keeping the, the tempo and the pacing going, who's on first would fall apart, would fall apart if you didn't have both guys at absolutely the top of their game. So obviously Costello gets the big laughs, but it, what blew my mind was hearing that in the world of comedy in the late thirties, that oftentimes straight men would get more a bigger piece of the action than the comedian because a good straight man was so rare they could demand a big piece of the pie because there was just it was such a valued commodity but everybody wants to be the funny guy no one wants to be the straight man like no one wants to be Zeppo Marx and I don't think Zeppo <laughs> Marx is anywhere near Bud Abbott but obviously everybody wants to be Lou Costello and get to show off and that sort of thing but it never even occurred to me just how how much value was placed on being the straight man. Obviously, Martin and Lewis would not be Martin and Lewis if you didn't have Dean Martin teeing up all these great, uh, all these great gags for oh, yeah. uh, Jerry Lewis to run riot with. 
Totally. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I did not know that about the straight man thing, but it doesn't surprise me that you mention it. Well, let's start talking about their transition into Hollywood. <clears throat> so obviously their first movie, they're not the stars, but according to the advertising, you might have thought they were. But talk, talk to us a little bit about how they finally made the switch to, uh, to Los Angeles. Well, you know what? Um, I still have not seen One Night in the Tropics, surprisingly. This is the one I didn't get a chance to get uh, up to speed with. But um, but yeah, I know that they got their start in a smaller part in that film and that things kind of really ballooned from there. They were such a huge hit in that that they, Universal decided to start putting them into – uh, their service comedies, you know, starting with Buck Privates, which was their big, big breakout, um, and which is a pretty great movie. I'm pretty sure that uh, Scorsese's a big fan of that one. I remember him talking about, we were talking about, you know, Bud Abbott teeing things up. I know there's a bit where, um, you know, Bud Abbott is telling Lou Costello, you know, are you going to take that from so-and-so? And, -so? and he, th that is sort of a, a, an ongoing thing that, that he'll do. He, he sort of winds Lou up when he's doing something and, you know, gets him in trouble again and again and again. And he seems to, to relish getting him in trouble. And it sort of starts with Buck Privates, I think. Um, but yeah, the, you know, they just sort of hit at the right moment. They were just what, during 1941 and, through 44 they were just exactly what people wanted you know in these service comedies it was it was in the thick of world war ii and i think this kind of humor and these kind of films with the andrews sisters you know the propaganda kind of stuff was just what people wanted at that time um and they were not afraid of staying busy like pace at which they work when they first arrive is kind of awe-inspiring. They, they basically, they nearly worked Costello into an early grave with the rheumatic fever, but they crank out like 10 or 11 movies in the span of two or three years, which like I said, by 1942, they were bigger than Clark Gable. They were bigger than Gary Cooper. I mean, they were the biggest act in Hollywood, which is kind of awe-inspiring because I feel like comedy... It always is kind of shat on. I feel like comedy some, sometimes doesn't necessarily age that well. But obviously people have no problem sitting down, sitting down and watching Spencer Tracy movies and Clark Gable movies and Gary Cooper movies. And it just seems weird that people would have like an aversion to these old school comedies because they're worried that they might like they might feel dated. But no one ever says like, oh, that horror movie's dated or that drama's dated. They still go back and watch these golden age movies. But I'm just blown away that they were able to sustain this pace while still doing radio and still doing public appearances and Ra like raising money for war bonds apparently they went on tour and hit like 85 cities and raised like 80 million in war bonds which is like the equivalent of like a billion dollars today i mean yeah. these guys were just i mean I'm, i don't know how much benzedrine or speed speed they were taking <laughs> to keep going but they were just yeah they were they were, they were flying high absolutely yeah i mean you know they do their their buck privates they're in the navy um and then they do hold that ghost, which is the beginning of the horror stuff, which is a pretty good movie. I know there that has some really hardcore fans, and I can see why. It's it's the um, meet Frankenstein before meet Frankenstein kind of in the midst of so you know the service comedies and the westerns that they're doing. Um, but yeah, I, I just I totally get it. I totally can see why they were so popular. I think they I saw that statistic. They were like twenty five percent of Universal's full take uh, for those like four or five years, you know, and that's crazy to me. Like they even had a chance to buy Universal at one point, <laughs> 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 but they they took a pass. But yeah, they saved the studio many times over. 
Yeah. Um, what are like, how, how do you feel about the service comedies? What were your thoughts on those? I've only seen them in terms of highlights. And so I imagine I would get very sentimental watching them because my grandfather fought in world war two. And so I would be very intensely reminded, but on this box set, they got a couple of different documentaries and in these documentaries, they show highlights. So I enjoyed the clips that I've seen, but I can't speak with any real authority of the, uh, of, of those early films like Buck Privates and in the Navy. Yeah, I mean, they're good. I Don't get me wrong. I like them, but I really feel like, you know, when you hit your hold that ghost and and then, you know, later on, Who Done It is is the first one for me that I absolutely adore. Like, I really like them. I mean, you know, we go One Night in the Tropics, Buck Privates, In the Navy, Hold That Ghost, Keep Them Flying, Ride Em Cowboy, which is their first Western. They did several of those. Uh, Rio Rita, Pardon My Sarong. And then we get up to Who Done It in 1942. This is murder. 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 <laughs> Are you scared? Don't be. Those masterminds of detection. Those terrific sleuths, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, will solve this crime or die in the attempt. Fire, Doc. How's things? Look out. Move over. Wouldn't I want to climb up here? Who done it? Wouldn't you like to know? Could it be Patrick Knowles? Or William Gargan? Or Louise Albritton? Or Jerome Cowan? Or could it be Abbott and Costello? You know, if we find the hand that fits that glove, we've got the murderer. Fits me perfect. I, I'm... <laughs> We're going to rebroadcast Murder at Midnight tonight. We're going to tell the whole radio world who killed Colonel Andrews. Then how come the Colonel was bumped off just as you showed in the script? How would I know? Maybe I'm such a good writer, I gave someone an idea. I think that is the one for me that, you know, hooked me outside of uh, Meet Frankenstein because somebody had told me about it on Twitter, uh, frankly, and I was like, well, that sounds fascinating. And it's just two dumb soda jerks that want to write radio mysteries and they go into pitch an idea at a radio station and they end up in the middle of like a real murder when the station owner is killed. I think that is the one for me that really clicks into place. It's from the director Earl C. Kenton, who also did, um, uh, Island of lost souls, which I think is intriguing. Oh, it's a great um, flick. We also did like ghost of Frankenstein and house yeah. of Dracula. He's a, a giant horror director and during some scenes in Who Done It, you can totally see his background in horror. Like when they're doing the actual recording of the radio show, and you have all this beautiful shadow play and all these great zooms and pushes in on people's faces as they're reacting. All of a sudden, it turns into like an actually like legitimately effective thriller there with tons of atmosphere. And I was like, all right, I. I, I I like the fact that over at Universal, you have so many great comedians and so many great horror directors finally colliding. It reminds me a little bit of Dimension films in the late 90s, where horror and comedy were their 
two core strengths. So of course, things like Scary Movie were a natural byproduct of that. And I just love how Universal was just leaning into both of these genres. And yeah, it seems like Earl Kenton, he stayed very busy for a good long while over there. Yeah, no, definitely. That was a surprise to me because I was definitely a fan of his prior to seeing Who Done It, but then noticing it's one of their best comedies, I was like, wow, that is interesting, you know. And and like you say, Universal definitely in touch with where their bread was buttered. Obviously, they had already done uh, their a lot of their Universal monster movies in the 30s, so they knew that horror could really get people. And and I love that they're discovering that horror comedy is also something people really seem to like, you know? Well, I can't lay claim to this rule when it comes to comedy, but, um, oh my God, I'm totally blanking. Who's that famous British film critic who like helped, uh, like rediscover all the lost pieces for Ken Russell's, the devils and these, uh, Oh, Mark Kermode. Yeah, exactly. Mark Kermode has this rule with comedy says where does it pass the six laugh test? And if a movie makes you laugh involuntarily six times or more, then it's an effective comedy. But it can't just be like a mild chuckle or you're kind of smiling and amused. You have to involuntarily burst out with laughter. Like, Bleh! and who done it 100% passed it. I was like, oh my God, this movie's from 1942 and I'm still cracking up like a crazy person. But one of the big ones that got me was when they're trying to read a sample of their uh, of their murder mystery they've been writing together, and Costello gets scared because Abbott's reading it too slowly. He's like, "Oh, you're reading it too slowly." He's like, he's getting too <laughs> invested, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like this thing is still making me crack up. And then of course the Va- the Watts or Volts routine, I think is almost as good as Who's on First. Obviously, less practiced, less refined, and apparently largely improvised. But that kind of wordplay. I thought was worthy of like Groucho Marx. Oh, totally. And speaking of uh, the Marx Brothers, there's a couple bits where Lou is getting fleeced by people um, thinking he's he's pulling one over on them. Oh, that little there's boy a, is fucking great. Yeah, that's so good. It totally reminded me of like uh, Day at the Races with the Marx Brothers, where you know Groucho keeps getting having to buy books from uh, from from um, uh, fuck. Why can't I think of his name right now? I'm blanking. On- it was funny. You mentioned Day of the Races. The the name of my podcast comes from a, a Day of the Races screening at the LACMA where I was, where I was watching the movie for the very first time. It was like one in the afternoon, a bunch of old people. And suddenly there's a weird reel change. And this guy behind me kind of chuckles and goes, wrong reel. And they, <laughs> they had to stop the movie and reassemble it because somebody had put, made them out of order. So yeah, but that's my most enduring memory of a Day at the Races. I love that. That's fantastic, man. Very cool. Yeah. Anyway, I just remember like thinking, oh, that's kind of Marx Brothers-y and I love seeing Luke Costello do that that business. But but yeah, there's the, the there's so many good bits in the movie that uh, I think people it's it's just one that I don't think people know. And I, I was just kind of that was part of the reason wanting to do this episode was to highlight some of these other films that I think are, you know, maybe not quite as funny as Meet, Meet Frankenstein, but they're they're pretty great, and I might argue that Who Done It as a comedy is actually funnier than Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. But Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein has so much going on and so many great things to enjoy that it just becomes like the great towering cult classic in their filmography. But in terms of like pound for pound, just like laughs per minute, I mean, just like just dumb things. When like at one point they're debating who should go into a room with the killer, he's like, "All right, pick a number between one and four. And he's like, three. He's like, "Wrong." It's like <laughs> 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 it's like it's 
it's borderline retarded, but it just it it just it's so effective and they they're so invested. It just I just kept cracking up again and again and again. Yeah, yeah, it's a great movie. I think definitely one of maybe my my next favorite after me Frankenstein. I think um, in their canon, I think people really need to see Who Done It for sure. And little fourth wall breaks, like on two oh, occasions, yeah. they make references to Who's on First. I mean, at one point they're they they're, they hear it on the radio and they're like, oh my god, like that's like they they're so burnt out on it. And they kind of like, oh, I don't like how like stupid fat guy. Like, the fact that they're making fun of their own material because at this point. Who's on first was everywhere. It obviously had been in their first movie, but it had been on the radio for years. They're totally tired of it. And they even make a, uh, when they're doing the Watts or Vulture routine, they say, oh, next thing you'll be telling me who's on second. And so for their fans, they're getting a little, like a little peek behind the curtain where they're poking fun at their own success at this point. Yeah, no, it's, it's just all around fantastic, fantastic stuff. Now, where do you stand on Costello's solo scenes? Because this is one of the first movies where, first and foremost, they eliminated almost all the musical numbers, which were a big part of their earlier movies, which seems like you could almost weren't even allowed to make a comedy in the 30s and 40s without inserting some musical numbers, but which, which usually the parts that age the least well. But in this, not only do they take all the music out so they can focus on, Lou, on Abbott and Costello, they also separate them for certain scenes and really just turn Costello loose. But like, I like watching Costello go berserk, but if he's not there having Abbott constantly slap him in the face and what's the matter with you? <laughs> I feel like it's kind of diminished, but where, where do you stand on that? I think I'm with you actually. I really like them together the most, um, or at least just having moments alone with Lou before he runs to Bud, you know, those those kind of things. But extended periods where he's by himself, they really are just this incredible, you know, intertwined comedic force. And I, I think they really need each other to be their most funny, you know? Agreed. Well, let's move on to your next choice, which I guess between this movie and the next is when Costello has like his year-long bed rest forced upon him due to rheumatic fever. And he also has this horrible personal tragedy where his one-year-old son oh. drowns in a pool and there's some historians who will argue that Costello was never the same like there's a um, there's a, like a video essay on the box set where this guy's going through their entire filmography and the ups and downs and I don't 100% buy this point but he claims <clears throat> there's an edge to Costello that is lost forever after that and I don't, I, once again, I'm not enough of an authority on their movies to be able to do like the, the official compare and contrast. I feel like maybe that might be a situation where he's come up with this narrative for one of his history books and he's kind of selectively looking for evidence to back up that narrative that he's pushing forward. But this is a period where Costello, yeah, his whole, he goes through some fundamental changes, both in terms of his family life and his health. And they, they shut down for a year and then they come back for In Society, which is just total chaos because Universal's dying to get another Abbott and Costello movie. They're kind of rushing it through production. They have two directors going simultaneously. They're reusing material from Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. And Abbott and Costello were having this big acrimonious contract dispute where they were basically walking off the set of four, no matter if they're in the middle of a take or not. But there is some really, really funny shit in this movie. So give the, give the premise for In Society. Why don't you use your head? I did, but it hurts that way. Oh. I'm going to have to go back to the old way. Uh, answer the phone. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, 
Oh, oh! I can't hear a thing you're saying, brother. Help, help! Put that down. There's the phone. Hello, Ajax Plumbing Company. We stand behind every bathtub we sell. Indeed, we do. What? Man, there's a butler on the phone. This is going to be a high-class job. Oh, yes. That's right, Ajax Plumbing. We charge $6 an hour. That's too much? Well, then why don't you try the Atlas Plumbing Company? They're very cheap. Thank you. Goodbye. Atlas Plumbing Company. $4 an hour. What? They wanted to charge you six? The Ajax did? They're nothing but a bunch of crooks. I'm glad you're doing business with us. We'll be right over. Thank you. Did I hurt you? I'm sorry. You should be sorry. Put them up. Put them up, Eddie. Put those down. I mean, after all, I'm um, Well, they are... Yeah, two two bumbling plumbers hired by a rich family to fix a leak is sort of the setup of it. And they just kind of get embroiled in this family's, you know, business after that. But it's got an incredible set piece early in the film where this rich guy comes home, his wife is throwing a party, he's like, I haven't slept in like three days. I'm gonna I need to get some sleep. And he seems very surly and he goes upstairs to try and get some sleep. There's some, <laughs> there's a leak in the sink. He's like, that's going to make me crazy. Call a plumber. I, I need some sleep. So of course he calls, you know, the first plumber in the book, which is them. And there's a great bit about, you know, them trying to price themselves, you know, up so that they can get another gig. And they have two phones they're answering with the same, you know, at the same place. So they, they're the both plumbing places. Anyway, so they show up and it is one of my favorite set pieces they've ever done. Just this whole mess of them trying to fix this sink, you know. It sounds easy and silly to just have like, you know, Lou fuck something up and water starts coming out, but the way that they play it, it's just so damn funny. And they're so yeah, loud. It's all about the execution. It's like, you're, they're like, Costello keeps causing more leaks because he's a spaz. And it should be stupid. It should just be broad and physical and kind of beneath contempt. But he makes you laugh. And if you're laughing, it's working. Like, once again, like if you are involuntarily cracking up, like you can, from an intellectual standpoint, look down on it all you like. But if you're being honest, the shit is fucking funny. Yeah, and I think I've always, going back to even W.C. Fields, I've always enjoyed routines where somebody's trying to sleep. So I think of, like, It's a Gift. There's a great bit where W.C. Fields is out on his patio trying to take a nap and people just keep making noise. Well, it reminds me a little bit of, like, old-school cartoons, like when you have, like, a bear that's trying to hibernate and, like, somebody keeps making noise. Like, so if you like animation from the late 30s, early 40s, you're going to fucking love Abbott and Costello. Like if you watch, like if you enjoy Who Killed Who, the, the Tex Avery classic, which is like my favorite animated murder mystery short, then Who Done It is going to be right up your alley. So I feel like they go hand in hand very well. Like, did Universal have an animation department like Warner Brothers or MGM, or did they just leave all that alone? I think they did, but I don't know that it was nearly as prominent as those other studios. I feel like Paramount had like the Fleischer Brothers, and obviously you said like you know Bob Clampett out there, and like Chuck Jones, and like and Tex Avery, and so many legends making animation. But I never really associate the Universal logo, which just makes me high when I see the the old school Universal logo. But you never really associate it with animation. 
No, I don't as much, unfortunately. I mean, thankfully, they had their own live-action version of it, so it's like, you know, yeah. they don't really need it. But, yeah. But, no, In Society was one of the surprises of the box set for me. Somebody, I'd put out a, God, I love Twitter sometimes. I'd put out a call to people, like, saying, hey, I just got this set. What do people recommend? And I got tons of great recommendations that I'm still going through. And In Society was one of them. And, yeah, this one just busted me up. Like, I've watched it, you know, twice since I got the box set. And it's easily one of my favorites that they've ever done. It's And it's underrated. Like, I'd never even heard of it until this box set. Well, this is also the beginning of their association with Gene Yarbrough, who would be one of their regular directors. I think they made five movies together. Like they got a handful of directors that would they would work with again and again and again that really define their careers. But Gene Yarbrough is definitely an, an essential component. But when it comes to writing, where do you stand on... Um, Oh, what's his name? It's uh, bam, 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 bam. John Grant, because I feel like John Grant sometimes gets overlooked in the discussion of Abbott Costello. Because it seems like, while there was a lot of improvisation, John Grant played a hand in writing a lot of their best material throughout a lot of these movies. Yeah, you know what? I hadn't paid that much attention to the the writing side of things. So, so educate me, educate me. Well, just it seems like John Grant. W- Admittedly, a lot of their material was borrowed from or inspired by a lot of uh, vaudeville and a lot of burlesque, but John Grant was always around to help hone and refine, and who's on first? He had played a large role in, in that as well, but just like there's so much like fun little like pl- like playing with words and like in this one in particular when they keep pronouncing like mispronouncing etiquette is like etikati and things like that, <laughs> and I feel like wow. Costello sells the writing with his just wild exuberance and screaming and crying and making baby faces and all of his stunts and everything. But I feel like sometimes the writing gets perhaps overlooked a bit because of the of the physical comedy that's associated with it. But when it comes to wordplay, once again, I'll keep going back to Groucho Marx. Like Groucho Marx for me is the heavyweight champion of interesting wordplay in terms of classic comedy. But I feel like they're right up there at that level with some of the interesting plays on words with a movie like In Society. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's that's where I, my appreciate, appreciation for them started to deepen. I mean, there is definitely something to the wordplay side of their act. Obviously, Who's on First being one of their most – maybe their most famous routine, and it's all about wordplay. It's all about speed, and I, I think they are underrated slightly in terms of – um, how good they were at that part of it. You know, people, I think, think of them as a physical comedy team in part. But, you know, you think about Naughty 90s, which is the next thing, uh, next big one for for them in terms of the stuff people remember after In Society. I think they really exhibit how good they were on their feet and with just a back and forth wordplay. I mean, it really is just this incredible skill that you, that seems so easy when they do it, but um, it's not. Well, it's like somebody who seems very calm on the surface when they're treading water, but beneath they're kicking and thrashing like very, very aggressively. And so, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of effort behind that that polish. But just a little throwaway lines in, uh, in society at one point, someone wants to get Lou Costello to change his eye. The last person that undressed me was my mother, and that was a year ago. And it's just like, it's like <laughs> those weird little things like that that get thrown in there. Once again, I was cracking up. The only thing about in society that I was not into was some of the musical numbers were yeah. like initially like when the cabbie girl gets up at a party and starts singing, I was like, all right, this is kind of lame, but I, I found myself tapping my foot no matter what I might have said. However, there's a scene where they uh, all these lovers are paddling around in canoes singing songs. I was like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> and so there's, there's some songs like at the, at the country club in the mansion and that sort of thing where I was like, all right, 
I, I don't know whose idea it was to insert this, but in terms of tone, it couldn't be more at odds with the, the comedy. So some of the musical numbers I feel like have not aged nearly as well as the comedic bits. I, I can't disagree with that. I mean, it's, it's, I, I find it so silly on some level that I, I was amused by it, but I get why it could take you out. But yeah, I think the, it's interesting the way that comedy and music were intertwined so much in cinema in the thirties and the forties. Um, but then they started to, pull that back i always think of the marx brothers and how uh, horse a lot feathers of their... horse is the best example where they all do the same song but they do their own version of it totally and and the fact that they they could pull that off but then you go to something like duck soup and leo mccary leo mccary is more or less like yeah you know the music stuff is cool and everything but fuck that fuck all that we're just gonna do your bits and they they Although strip they out that one crazy song at the end like hotty 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 yeah. like like all that like the the one big musical number of duck soup is bananas like when woody allen's about to commit suicide i think and hannah and her sisters and he like run he acts, and the gun goes off he stumbles into a screening of duck soup and, and it's that sequence and he just like you know his life gets put back on firm footing yeah, yeah. I mean, they open with a big song to introduce Groucho, and then they yeah, close with yeah, Hail Fredonia and all that stuff. Yeah, so that stuff's great, but I but I do feel like it is interesting when directors start to strip that stuff away and make it more about the bits. You know, I mean, I think it does tend to work. You know, the the mu- musical stuff I can take or leave. I think that's part of the reason the service comedies are are good but not great for me is I like the Andrew sisters. They're actually very catchy. I can see why they were popular. Um, but they do stop the movie, um, for those bits and sometimes many times and it's fun. It, it actually makes for a, a very enjoyable view, but ultimately, um, you know, a movie like in society, I think could do without some of that. I, I can't argue that. Well, after this, they have a bit of a <clears throat> kind of a rebuilding period where their box office numbers started to decline and wane a tad. And in 46, according to these documentaries, they started to experiment with the formula, like Little Giant in the time of their lives. They weren't even really like Abbott and Costello like vehicles in terms of the traditional sense where they would play characters who were just in different scenes and had their own different uh, agenda. They were largely independent from one another. And while some people really liked the time of their lives – their box office skid accelerated and continued as a result. And it's it basically takes one of the best ideas in movie history where you mix chocolate and peanut butter together. You mix horror and comedy together to resurrect, and suddenly they're back on top again. I think in 1948, they were the number three box office stars in the business. So talk to us a little bit about how this, I don't know, it, this is like uh, when it comes to, if you want to compare movies to like to sex, like this giant orgasm of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, <laughs> how does this movie come about? Well, I mean, from what I understand, Lou Costello actually had some inklings of it as a stage idea um, prior to the film. Right. And so that they were going to try and do it on Broadway, but they were just too fucking busy, like between their radio commitments and their movies, they could not make that happen. But then, um, you know, that Universal had pushed them into the idea of doing this. And, you know, Lou Costello in particular was like, this is garbage. My kid could write better, (laughs) better script than this. Um, But, you know, they went ahead and did it. And it's it's just fantastic. I mean, you have. Lon Chaney Jr. coming back as the Wolfman, the only man ever to play the Wolfman, unlike 
uh, Dracula and Frankenstein, which were played by multiple actors. Um, and then Glenn Strange playing Frankenstein is great. Bella Lugosi fighting tooth and nail to get Dracula, which I think is sad, but you know, I'm glad that they came around. Well, it had been um, what, 17 years since he'd previously yeah. played it. So 17 years in showbiz is like a hundred. Yeah. Especially back then. And I think Universal thought he was dead, so they didn't even <laughs> at first ask him, you know, I mean, I don't know, but I'm so glad that, that he got brought back into the fold because he really does help elevate the movie and make it one of the greatest all-star games in cinema ever, you know? I just think it's so good because all the people that you want to be scary uh, and or just do their thing are doing it perfectly and just kind of working their way around Bud and Lou. And yeah, it just has some of my favorite bits from them and some great you know, actual scares, and I just think it's such a brilliant film. I can see why it's so beloved, you know? Well, he won't chase us anymore. And another thing, Mr. Chick Young, the next time that I tell you that I saw something when I saw it, you believe me that I saw it. Oh, relax. Now that we've seen the last of Dracula, the Wolfman and the Monster, there's nobody to frighten us anymore. Oh, that's too bad. I was hoping to get in on the excitement. Who said that? Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the Invisible Man. <laughs> now, I'm going to nerd out on you a bit. Where do you stand on the debate of continuity? Because while I love the Universal Monster movies, I typically lean toward the ones by Todd Browning or the ones by James Whale, and I watch a lot of the obvious ones, but they're <clears throat> but I won't claim to be an expert on all the early 40s ones where you suddenly have this continuity where the movies, whether it was like the Wolfman getting cured or whatever the case might be, but in the early 40s, they were cranking out many, many, many sequels to The Wolfman and The Invisible Man and Frankenstein, etc., and it got the continuity got very complex, but I know for the diehard fanatics for those early '40s Universal horror movies, where you start having all these face-offs, there's a lot of debate about whether or not Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is a part of the official continuity because obviously the Wolfman had been cured, and like for me when I watch this, it seems like. It's like a reset or like a soft reboot for Dracula. It's a soft reboot for the Wolfman's, a soft reboot for Frankenstein's monster. But there are other people who will argue that it is a part of the official narrative. What, do, you, do you have any strong feelings about that? I don't know about strong feelings, but I think I'm with you on this one. I really do feel like Universal is trying to make it accessible in a way that – I mean I know the the – you know, monster movies, those sequels that you're talking about, those um, versus movies. Yeah, like House were of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, et cetera. Yeah, I know those were popular, but they weren't popular on the level of Abbott and Costello. So I, I think their approach is more to be like, you know, these characters, and here's sort of a general look at, you know, the last time you saw them. Because I, my thought is that maybe there were some people that hadn't thought about some of those characters since the 1930s, if at all. So you kind of need them to reset a little bit and just be basic versions of themselves so that Bud and Lou can interact as opposed to getting too deep down the rabbit hole with continuity and stuff like that. So I'm with you. Yeah, and I, what I love about this is how when Lon Chaney Jr. is doing his routine, he plays it straight. And when Bella Lugosi is doing his routine, he plays it straight. Like they're not mugging from the camera they're not doing it with a wink they're not being ironic and i think the fact that the horror scenes are done with sincerity 
makes it all the more hysterical when Costello starts stuttering and screaming and losing his fucking mind. And there are not a lot of examples of that. I mean, obviously, everyone's going to always talk about American Werewolf in London, which is one of the heavyweight champions of the horror comedy genres kind of colliding. But I feel like if you really want a horror comedy to, to work well, the horror has to be done with sincerity. And I think some of the best moments in universal horror history are actually, and it's like watching the Wolfman jump off a porch and grab Dracula as he's transforming into a bat and watching them fall like hundreds of feet down into the ocean. I was like, wow, like that would actually have been a really effective ending to just a straight horror movie and it would have been totally satisfying. Yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely some great bits in here that I think will would surprise some people in terms of how, you're right, sincerity, like how committed they are to making it like an actual throwback then to one of their old horror movies from 17 years earlier. So I think that really is the key. I think Charles Barton um, is another one of those directors that did a ton of great movies with um, Abbott and Costello and... I, you know, I don't, I don't want to give all the credit to, to him. Certainly there's a lot of scripting stuff, but he definitely is part of some of their, I think some of their better movies and seem to be able to handle them pretty well and have a good working relationship with them. And the writing on this is so first rate. I mean, I'm looking at the uh, IMDb right now. So you've got Robert Lees who wrote the original screenplay. You also got Frederick I. Ronaldo, John Grant, who's obviously his name comes up quite a bit. And uh, uncredited writers, Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker, since they came <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the characters. But there's so many great little bits. Like at one point, after Lon Chaney's talking about for the fifth time that like somebody needs to lock him up because he's going to change. And Abbott, who, once again, underrated comedian, goes, ah, why don't you hire yourself a keeper? Like it's the most obvious thing in the world. Like all these Wolfman movies, they would basically <laughs> fall to pieces if he would just hire somebody and say, hey, look. The, the, the sun's about to go down. Why don't we take you over here and put you away? And that way you won't spread your disease or kill any more people or whatever. And it's just that, that little throwaway line by Bud Abbott just had me fucking howling. Or another scene, like I'm always impressed with comedies where they give great funny lines to people who are not the stars, where Chick says, well, Professor, do you understand women? Professor Stevens says, I don't even try. I'm going to get me a drink. <laughs> like, he says it in such a ruthless fashion. And I just, once again, was in my pants. So I think the the script for this movie is first rate. Yeah, a hundred percent. One of the best scripts they ever worked with. And for Lou to say that about it, I just think is kind of shocking in a way. But yeah, I mean, there is something that in terms of their bits, which are great, um, and some of the physical stuff. But the throwaway lines are things that I, I especially watching, you know, six, seven, eight of their films in a short period of time, you start to notice those a little bit more and they are fantastic. There are some of the funniest moments that you're just like, wow, that was great. And you're still laughing at it as they move into another bit. And I love that. And also just the, the premise alone is just hysterical. The idea that like Dracula wants to make Frankenstein's monster a little more docile, a little less unruly and a little more, uh, just a little bit more obedient. And of course, what better brain to put in there than Lou Costello? <laughs> it's like as good as like the Abbey normal joke, like in young Frankenstein, like just the idea that they're going to chop out Lou Costello's fucking brain. And you're seeing how like, I mean, just they're, they're per they, they hold nothing back when they are putting them on the slab and they're preparing to do the surgery. Like, I just love that. Like, this bumbling idiot it's got like what well, he has this great line where he says like oh, i've had this brain for 30 years it hasn't done me any good like ask me what one and one is once again it's just it's comedy and horror colliding in the best possible way but also for people who like these 
classic, iconic universal creatures. Is there a movie where you have more of them in the same scene than this? Because at the very end of the movie, you've got this simultaneous action unfolding where Frankenstein's monster is chasing Abbott and Costello, but the Wolfman and Dracula are just like on a rampage, like throwing potted plants at each other and knocking over furniture and just, and just chasing each other around like, like five-year-old kids who've had like too much jolt cola. But, it, <laughs> it's, but it's hysterical having these three icons in the, like, in the same frame at the same time. Yeah, and then there's a nice little um, Invisible Man joke thrown in there at the end with a nice little cameo voice. Um, that's a great bit. Yeah, but no, you're right. In terms of endings, I think that's something about the movie that's a little bit underrated, like they really go all out with that ending. You know, it's, it's pretty great. Like that shot of Vincent Price is one of my earliest movie memories. Like I can remember sitting like on the floor in this like nasty blue carpet with this crummy ass TV that was really low to the ground. But of course, like, you know, it's the late, late seventies, early eighties, but you know, you sit Indian style in front of the TV, but just seeing the invisible man and hearing Vincent Price's voice, I, I, maybe I was four, maybe I was five, but it, it, it just seared into my memory and made such a huge impact on me. Yeah, no, it's it's a great bit. And and for those that haven't seen um Vincent Price's Invisible Man movie, you should definitely check it out. Um which one is it? I can't I think it's Return of I don't know what's again Invisible like Man. I've seen James Whale's Invisible Man probably 10 times and I I, I can never get enough of it, but it, when it comes to the sequels, I've been very remiss. One of my biggest holes in my game when it comes to Golden Age of Hollywood is all the sequels. Yeah, I'm. To be fair, I haven't seen a lot of the Frankenstein sequels and some of the Dracula sequels. The Invisible Man is the one particular series that I'm so fond of that I've done the deep dive. I mean, thankfully we're in a an era of tons of box sets, so you can go and get your Frankenstein box set, your Dracula, your Invisible Man, your Creature from the Black, Black Lagoon, um, you know, Wolfman box sets, and go, you know, have a field day with that stuff. And I do recommend people do that. The Invisible Man series in particular is one that I, I just love. So um, I highly recommend that as an aside. Now, is but, the Achilles heel of this movie the fact that Boris Karloff took a pass on participating? Because I know he agreed to do publicity, but he was a little worried that this movie would be embarrassing and kind of poke fun. He'd played uh, Frankenstein's Monster three times, and I've, I've seen Bride of Frankenstein and Frankenstein you know, a million times over, but there's part of me that wishes he'd shown up as the mummy or something. Obviously, Creatures from the Black Lagoon, Black Lagoon didn't exist yet, so there's no chance of getting him in there, but you've got these Invisible Man, Wolfman, Frankenstein's Monster, and Dragon. You've got four icons. If they just found Boris Karloff and found a way to get him to come back as the mummy... I mean, holy crap, the, it, it would have uh, made a neat, an already great movie that much better. Yeah, probably. I can't disagree with that. I think Glenn Strange does a really solid job, um, and I know that um, Karloff, wor- Karloff worked with him specifically in terms of you know getting the character the way that he did it. Um, so he had tutelage, and he was the right physical type and was a huge, huge fan of the monster himself. So I think he does a good job. But yeah, it would have been great to get um, Karloff in there somewhere. You yeah, know? I mean, Glenn Strange is just so giant and so strong, whether he's like punching through a door and actually hitting Costello in the face, or when he <laughs> grabs that girl and picks her up and throws her out a window, you're like, holy shit. Like, you know, Boris Karloff does a brilliant job as the monster, but he's a, a slender guy. He's a brilliant actor. But Glenn Strange is like, this guy could like fucking fight Andre the Giant. He's this big, strong dude, so he really sells just the power of the monster in ways that I don't feel like Boris Karloff necessarily did. 
No, that's a actually a fair point. And it's funny you bring up the woman being thrown out the window. That was something that Tarantino mentioned specifically as a reason the movie is scary and effective is like that she's dead. He she's yeah. he threw out the window, she's gone. You know, and, and it's not something they show her body or anything, but you're like, Wow, yeah, that's kind of crazy. He totally just killed her. <laughs> Yeah, she and uh, uh, what's what's the name of that actress again? Because uh, she's the only one who makes the cut with the animation at the beginning, the animation that is absolutely loved. But is it um, uh, Lenore Albert? How do you say her name? Uh, yeah, I believe that's correct. I yeah, believe that's but uh, the an, the animated opening to this man. It, once again, there's certain opening credit sequences from the 30s and 40s that have the like i feel like i've just like smoked some weed i'm just like ooh, it's just like it's pure ecstasy <laughs> and when those animated characters come out and they all get introduced by name and then you get this little like beautiful like jingle of music when they show like you know and lenora albert or whatever but i think it was hugh hefner who's a big fan of her and you see why in the next movie we'll be tackling when they uh, when they meet the killer but very sexy woman from hungary and she's got a really muscular, like lower back and a great torso and great bare midriff and a lot of this stuff. But I feel like she's she's a great addition to the Abbott and Costello chemistry overall with these two flicks. Absolutely, 100%. And speaking of that music in the opening of Frankenstein, I believe they reused it yep. for Meet the Killer. Absolutely. Straight up, you know. Um, yeah, Meet the Killer is is definitely one that I think is, is underrated and easily one of their better monster movies and i think people that like i mean it's 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 not i would say it's more of a whodunit than a monster movie 100 but but it does have a great ending and that pulls some monstery stuff in sort of well it's um, almost like jason from friday the 13th part two shows because <laughs> yes. he's got a raincoat and a mask with eye holes and i love it's it. like he looks like a straight up like 70s and 80s era slasher killer i was like wow yes. i was like this is a very much a precursor to something that'll be very much in vogue decades later yeah i think that that bit is part of what really you know sells the movie at the end for me it really ends in a strong way um but yeah i mean it's it's it starts it as a hotel um whodunit basically with a bunch of suspects, including Boris Karloff, who they do get back here, and he plays, um, he's like a hypnotist, and I kind of have a thing where I love uh, hypnotism in movies, because uh, it's, it's just one of those things that I always find very amusing. You're going to commit suicide if it's the last thing you do. Take this knife. Use it. Freddy, listen to me. You will do as I tell you. You will obey me without question. Freddy, I want you to take this knife and plunge it into your heart. Do as I say. Amazing. Even under hypnosis, the will of an idiot to cling to life. Freddy, would you plunge this knife into the heart of the man in the mirror? Good. And take the knife. 
plunge it into the heart of the man in the mirror. No, 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 Freddy, not me. Not me, you fool. The man in the mirror. Freddy, obey me. What's such a great little special effect? Were they talking about Bella Lugosi and Dracula? Where did the case be? As long as the actor sells you on their gestures, like you didn't see me, and so on and so forth. But Karloff and Lugosi were both capable of just waving their fingers and selling you on the idea that you're watching magic on display. Yeah. But yeah, it's just like this, this is. This movie came out in 1949. There's no CGI, so this is about as like as powerful as magic got. Yeah, no, I, it really works well. The way he, there's something about his voice, and there's a really incredible sequence in the movie where he's trying to get uh, Lou to kill himself, and he keeps failing, and it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant to see Karloff and Costello in a scene together this late in their career. I mean, not that late in their careers, but kind of, um, and they're both just as good as you'd want them to be. They're both as funny and, and again, Karloff playing it straight, basically, uh, as, as Lou just continues to baffle him. Yeah. Karloff, his gifts remained pretty much totally intact, if not better, his entire career. I mean, look at the very end when he's doing things like targets with Peter Bogdanovich or doing like how the Grinch stole Christmas. He's still incredible. Like did that voice. It's just, he's, he's one of those great movie icons. Whether you're talking Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee or Bella Lugosi or whom or long Chaney. Um, they're just, they're only a handful of guys who really are these, like these great horror icon personalities. And yeah, Boris Karloff, he's the only person who ever got his name in the title with Abner Castell because Abner Castell meet the killer comma Boris Karloff. And even though he's not the killer, but it seems to imply that he is. Yeah, no, and it's tricky. There is actually some debate about what the title of the movie is. Like Troy Horth in the commentary makes a case that it's actually Abbott and Costello meet the killer and that Karloff's credit comes as a secondary thing in the oh, front of the like, movie. Just so it's for the poster art, yeah. Yeah, something weird. But anyway, I, I do like that title. I like it better as a title with Boris Karloff's name in it. There's just something neat about that. Also, the, the full title of these movies is not Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer or Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. It's Bud Abbott and Lou Costello Meet the Killer, comma, Boris yeah. Karloff. I mean, they're long titles, but everybody always says Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, but technically it's Bud Abbott and Lou Costello Meet the Fra meet Frankenstein. But quick question. You know, I, mean, I remember when I was a kid in the 80s, Every kid always thought they were really cool when they knew that Frankenstein wasn't the monster. Like Frankenstein was the guy who created the monster, and everything. Like, but if you went to the, like a Halloween store, the mask would say Frankenstein. You'd buy the monster's mask. Blah blah blah. But was it with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein where that kind of, um, I guess, that fallacy started to emerge where people would just started calling the monster Frankenstein? Because obviously the movie, the title of the movie is implying because Frank, Doctor Frankenstein never shows up in the movie. Just the no. monster. But perhaps that movie played a role and people are just starting to call the monster Frankenstein? I, I honestly don't know. That's a very good question. I mean, there's so many sequels uh, and versus movies that I, I that I haven't seen that I don't know how they treat it. But, I mean, in terms of popular films that do something to 
change the mythology, I would think that this is a big one, you know, back in 1948. Well, getting back to Meet the Killer, once again, with the comes to genre mashups, what I like is that when it goes into thriller territory, it really goes all in. Like you have these great little visual flourishes. Like at one point, you see a, um, a knife coming into frame in the corner, but it's not to kill somebody. It's just like to peel an orange or like a little <laughs> hand coming around the corner to adjust like the dial when uh, Costello is going through like some steam therapy. And like when the shadows come into play, they're at the appropriate time. Or when they're in this giant network of caves at the end, like where you have like bottomless pits and vats of molten lava <laughs> and all this stuff. But once again, like they lean all into it. And I think that's one of the, I mean, I would not place this movie on the level of Frankenstein, meet Frankenstein, but I like how they are trying to sell you on those aspects to the best of their ability. And with all the dead bodies popping up all over the place. Yes. We're totally in Clue territory. I, I feel like Clue, they must have watched this movie a thousand times over. Absolutely. I think if you like Clue, you definitely should watch Meet the Killer. It's it's totally that kind of template. Yeah, I love how Costello keeps finding bodies in closets. I think that's hilarious. I think there's more fourth wall breaks in this movie than any of the other ones that I've seen. And that's hilarious. Um yeah, I mean, between the the bodies and the fourth wall breaks and the, like, traps that Lou is trying to set up for his room so to catch the killer, which I think are really funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it leaves him up, and, of course, it gives you a great little zinger at the end and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's great. And then, and then the hypnotism and then the cave fi- final sequence with that crazy-looking killer, I think, which is also reminiscent of, like... Uh, I know what you did last summer or something like that. Um, I think it, it really stands out for me as, as one of the better ones. You know, it's one that I really enjoy. I just got a, a great uh, watchability to it. And the other thing that uh, I haven't mentioned is almost none of these movies goes past the 90 minute mark, which is oh, another yeah, they're, great they're tight. thing. Yeah, they're typically about like 82 minutes. And yeah, uh, the comedies in the 30s and 40s would be between like 70 and 90 minutes always. And you can't go wrong. It gives you more show times per day. So it's great for theaters. It's great for business. And it's better to leave audiences wanting more as opposed to kind of running out of gas and running out of steam. This whole idea of like every screenplay needs to be 140 pages and every movie needs to be two hours and 20 minutes is complete and total nonsense. Like if you want to, if you want to, like, I feel like, uh, like something like Last of the Mohicans, which everyone assumes is a three-hour movie, but it's not. It's only like two hours and 25 minutes or something like that. Like even historical epics can benefit from being a little tighter. And yeah, as Woody Allen always says, I can improve any movie sight unseen, make it shorter. Yep, that's 100% the way. And that's another reason this box set is such a delight is you can pop in you know, two or three of these movies and, and not waste a whole day. It's just so much fun. Well, sadly, as a result of this movie, Lou Costello had a relapse of rheumatic fever, and so he was uh, bedridden again. And they don't make another movie until Abbott and Costello and the Foreign Legion in 1950. And it seems like for the historians out there, it's in the 50s where Abbott and Costello start to show their first signs of perhaps having a little fatigue, a little age, a little gray hair. And you start seeing that perhaps like their appeal is perhaps starting to wear off a little bit because you've got... Um, you know, just changing tastes and you start to get a little overexposure because they go all in on live TV and apparently they just love live TV because they can finally hear the laughter 
of the audience again, something they'd really missed because you know, you're funny. Like if you're a stand up comedian, you know, if your material is funny because the audience is either going to laugh or they're not. But if you're only making movies, I feel like it can make uh, comedians a little complacent. But in the fifties, we got one more flick that you picked for us to discuss. Abbott and Costello meet the invisible man from 1951. So lay it on us. It sounds like you are an invisible man buff. So how many invisible man movies were made in the classic era between the 30s, 40s, and 50s? I want to say there was like five or six at least, um, but there may be more. You know, uh, I'm trying to think what's included in that box set. I'll have to look it up. But uh, I, I just, I just, there's something about being invisible that I Isn't think. Isn't there one where lo- he like fights in World War II or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the invisible agent, which gotcha. is, uh, by the way, another Tarantino favorite, as I recall. I feel like I saw him mention that at some point as one that he really likes. Um, there's the invisible girl, return of the, the uh, it's like invisible man, invisible man returns, invisible woman, invisible agent, invisible man's revenge. And then Abbott and Costello meet the Invisible Man. So I think about six. Yeah, it's um, happening again. Like you got Elizabeth Moss in a, in a new one, and you've mm-hmm. already got Elizabeth Banks directing the Invisible Woman or Lady or whatever. So yeah, they're like the Invisible franchise is coming back in a big way. There's something about invisibility and flight as like two abilities that people can really relate to because you could just get this idea of like, what if I could disappear? You know, it's just something that's got universal in its appeal. I think that's part of the reason it keeps coming back and can be very scary, you know? Don't give me that invisible stuff again. Honest. And there were footsteps with no feet. And a grip that was unpacking itself. All right, boys, let's go. (laughs) They're private eyes, they are. And they're tickled to death, as you may be, that their first job is a murder case. Only a man they can't see is driving them to distraction. I said pull over to the... A blonde is trying to booby trap them. And the syndicate is trying to set them up for a quick one, too. <laughs> Buddy, you know I'm no fighter. Oh, what's the difference? Look, watch this. My uncle is worried, too, about the... About the effect of the drug on my mind? Invisibility gives me a sense of power. For good or for evil. Neither of you get a chance to tell the cops anything. Well, look, pal, let's talk this thing over. Let's go. Um, but yeah, Invisible Man is is one of the later ones that I think is funny. You definitely do feel them, you know, and see them older. You can just tell they're they're looking older in this movie. Um, but I do think it's funny. It's based around the idea that this boxer is accused of killing his manager, and um, he ends up, you know, 
getting the formula and injecting it in himself rather than having to face the police. And so this ends up sparking the idea for trapping the guy that actually killed the manager. And the boxer is using Lou and Bud to kind of help him, you know. Um, But there's some really great bits in this, including a very famous fight scene at the end with, you know, a boxing match with um, with Lou in the ring getting help from the Invisible Man. And that's that's one of their more memorable bits, I think. Well, also, like I said, this is actually officially part of the Invisible Man continuity. You have a picture of Claude Rains on the wall at one point. They make a reference to him by name, and apparently it was originally intended to be a straight film in the Invisible Man series, but then it was repurposed because Meet Frankenstein had been such a massive hit. But yeah, I, I really enjoyed the box. I love how, I mean, I, I love combat sports, period. And I love it when, like, Charlie Chaplin has the boxing scene and City Lights, or when you've got Buster Keaton doing boxing scenes and some of his shorts. But I always love it when comedy and boxing come together. And yeah, Lou Costello was not a physical specimen. He looked like his, he had a body made from cottage cheese. And so it's just fun how this movie, it's not trying to be a mashup with the horror or the thriller genre. It's trying to almost be like a mashup with like the sports genre, even though it's incorporating the Invisible Man formula as well. And I love it when movies just start to become complete and total chaos, just pulling from as many different sources as uh, as they like. But it still has a bunch of great lines in there. Like at one point, Bud Abbott, when he's sitting there ordering drinks at the table and he's got the Invisible Man next to him, the waiter's kind of like raising his eyebrow. And he's like, I'm a two-fisted drinker. Like, put it in there. And it's just something about the way he says it was hysterical. Or at one point, uh, someone says to uh, Costello, like, oh, no, there's a man. He says, that's the first time anyone said that about me. Just his bouncing baby boy routine is still strong in spite of his age. And I feel like in the world of comedy, there's this great tradition of idiot man-child characters who are like curious about women, women, but also simultaneously terrified of them. Like Harry Langdon played that persona really well in a lot of movies. And Buster Keaton did a few times where this idea of like, they, they're interested in women, but they're really innocent. And in this scene, you've got, in this movie, you've got a great buxom woman trying to seduce Costello into fixing the fight. And I always like watching that contrast where you've got a kind of a vamp preying upon a guy who just has no idea what he's doing when it comes to girls. Yeah, I I've never get tired of that bit. It's really funny to me, too. Now, what do you make um, of the chaos at the end where Costello gets a little bit of blood from the blood transfusion and ends up going invisible, but for whatever reason, as he comes back visible, his legs are on backwards now, and he has to, like, there's this weird shot where he, like, runs away from the camera through a door and, like, leaves, like, like a hole in the wall. But I was like, what? What the fuck? Like, like yeah, the no, left me kind of scratching my head. And no, it devolves into utter nonsense, unfortunately. But, you know, it's it's just goofy. And I, to me, like, if it's the last um, Bud and Lou movie you watch, I think it's an, I don't know, an oddly fitting way to go out that it would devolve into something so weird and nonsensical. It's just kind of par for the course with them. But yeah, it doesn't line up at all, honestly. Yeah, well, well, it seems like around this time, they're like, you can tell, like when you watch the outtakes or some of the just the scenes from that they're doing on TV and you see them, because obviously at this point when it's it's live TV back then, you couldn't do, like you couldn't cut away when they're breaking character and they're kind of laughing in the middle of takes. Like they are still enjoying their careers. And it seems like they always enjoyed doing long takes anyway. Like I know a lot of directors complained about how when they were working with Abbott and Costello, you couldn't like stop, all right, well, pick up that scene from this line because we're going to shoot from this angle. They had to do their routine in its entirety. Like they couldn't st- start in the middle, which sometimes made it a little difficult from a filmmaking standpoint. But sadly, in the 50s, 
wherein you start to have them uh, declining in popularity due to overexposure, you also have this horrible, shitty situation where, like, financially, they encountered complete and total utter ruin because they had some really corrupt, dishonest accountants working for them that kept filing extension after extension. And the IRS, at a certain point, decided to make an example of them and hit them both with these huge fees. And they had to, like, sell their houses and all their belongings. And it just seems like suddenly, like these guys who have been box office kings for Hollywood for so many years, suddenly their lives are like in a total fucking tailspin. It, 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 like their whole story ends in kind of a sad fashion. Yeah, it's really unfortunate, you know, and it's definitely something that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. And it's just a bummer. It's really, I wish they could have gone out um, the way that they deserved, you know, in, a, in the way they left and continue to leave so many people feeling good and happy, you know, it's too bad. Yeah. I mean, they split up in 1957 and Lou Costello, he's dead two years later and Bud Abbott basically never does anything ever again. I mean, I don't know if it was one of the things where he realized like I'll never be able to replicate or capture that magic, but yeah, it's, uh, it's like I feel like Hollywood's a lot like combat sports where there're not a lot of fighters who retire in the at the the appropriate time usually they stick around a little too long and they take a little bit too much head trauma and it gets a little ugly and they take a few losses that they perhaps they shouldn't have and yes yeah, sadly the story of Abin Costello after reaching these delirious heights and maintaining it for so many years it all just kind of crumbles in the 50s and it, it makes their whole narrative or their whole story bittersweet in a lot of ways yeah, yeah, it's 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 really too bad, but I do think it's it's really neat to examine that at least through this box set via the documentaries and things like that to give yourself a broader picture and hopefully a broader appreciation for how great they were uh even despite, you know, uh those endings. Well, Seinfeld points out an interesting thing in his uh, – on the box that there's a documentary he did in 1994 where he's like, you know, it's, this is young, handsome Jerry Seinfeld still like in, in absolute the peak of his fame on TV doing like a 50-minute documentary about how much he loves uh, Abbott and Costello. But he's talking about how what's remarkable is that even once you've heard their best bits – that you can keep watching them. Like the fact that you can take the naughty nineties who's on first bit and watch it like 30 times in a row and be mesmerized by the complexity of it each and every single time. That's really rare and unusual in comedy. Like, I mean, comedy, I feel like is such a, a weak place in terms of cinema right now. Like there's a lot of great stand-up. I mean, I've in the, in the past year I saw Joey Diaz. I saw Dave Chappelle. I saw Jerry Seinfeld, like stand-up comedy right now. There's so much great stuff going on. But when it comes to movies, it's like, do I really want to go see Dave Bautista doing like some stupid <laughs> comedy? Like, it's, it's just if you're a comedy movie fan, like there's just not a lot of movies like Airplane coming out right now. Or not a lot of movies like Team America or Waiting for Guffman or any great comedy that you can think of. But I guess when it comes to the historical legacy that's been left behind by Abbott and Costello, how would you characterize like their their lasting influence when it comes to comedy in terms of their their brand of clean comedy like do you see any historical parallels since then like would you say like maybe like david spade and uh chris farley in the 90s had a similar thing going on or yeah yeah i guess i could see that i think um i mean certainly martin and lewis between now then and now but but yeah you know i don't know in terms of that type of thing i feel like at least for me a lot of the comedic mantle was inherited by the SNL comedians and 
their forays into cinema sometimes successful, sometimes not. But I'm trying to think like, I don't know. I don't know if there's anybody that quite stands up. I think we've become much more focused on single comics and we've moved away from the teamings. Well, like Trey Parker and, and Matt Stone are obviously a great duo, but they haven't appeared sure. on screen together in a long time. Like they do a lot of voice work, but it's mostly as like writers and directors. So I feel like in the 21st century, Trey Parker and Matt Stone are probably the most famous comedy duo that I can think of where they just, they never work apart. Yeah. And, and rightfully so and correctly so. I mean, they just seem to have the ability together to hit the zeitgeist and and just be just the most funny people in certain situations that you can imagine. So yeah, I guess that's probably the best one that I can think of beyond again the SNL folks. Well, for put me on your anyway. producer hat for a second. Let's say you were hired by Jason Blum over at Blumhouse, and he said, "All right, we've got all these great horror properties, all these great horror franchises. We want to do an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein for the modern age. If you were to take a few comedians today." that have a certain routine and like certain horror franchises, whether it's get out or the conjuring or whatever. And you were to create a new horror comedy mashup from very popular. Cause they have to already be established, successful, uh, kind of, um, franchises in their own right prior to the mashup, create a horror comedy mashup for 2020 that, Oh man, that you would like to see, or is it, are we in an era now where, because there are no visible people that are like, I, could you take like John C. Riley and Will Ferrell and collide it with the Conjuring universe and make it funny? Huh. Um, well, I mean, based on Holmes and Watson's success, and I haven't seen that film, but <laughs> an abysmal <so>, failure. <laughs> I apparently not funny and not good. Um, I don't know. You know, I I think I would lean towards maybe somebody like I don't know. I'm just trying to think of actors that I think would work. I mean, do you have ideas that, cause I'm curious what you would I do. I think with if this you were to thing. do it, what you would have to find a way to do, and it would be very, very challenging because of how tightly controlled the IP is, but you would have to take well-known beloved superhero characters and combine them with well-known beloved comedic characters. And obviously if you were to do it, I guess say the say the MCU had run out of steam at this point and it was on its last legs and Marvel was looking for ways to resurrect interest in Iron Man, Cap, Thor, etc. Then you could say, all right, well, let's do the Avengers meet Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, or the Avengers meet like or the Avengers go to South Park. Or, like, I feel like because South Park already creates these mashups all the time where they just have do commentary on pop culture, but to try to do a movie where both the superhero antics as well as the comedy are done with equal sincerity. But I feel like that's the most obvious contender because of the dominance of the superhero genre right now. But you probably wouldn't see that unless the superhero genre were to appear to have run its course because superhero fans are so invested, they wouldn't necessarily want to see their heroes being poked fun at and so but who knows maybe robert downey jr at 70 is willing to put back on the suit <laughs> and, and do a comedy with who's ever funny like you know in 2040 or whatever yeah i mean i i would throw hannibal burris into the ring as like a potential hell yeah he's um, so goddamn good i just think even in movies like i have a weird fondness for something like tag um and 
uh, even Baywatch, you know, well, he like was hysterical he... in Spider-Man Homecoming where he plays like the substitute yep. teacher or whatever. And he's like, oh, yeah, uh, he's yeah. like, I don't know, like Captain America. I think he's like a terrorist now, but like something but, like, <laughs> that, that little line he said was it brought the house down. Yeah, no, he's great. And I just I love his sort of nonchalant style. Like, I feel like he to me is the one I think of in terms of somebody that could if you were trying to do. Uh, a Lou Costello kind of thing. Like, I feel like he doesn't have the same manic energy. Like, he's a little bit more he's laid so back. Mellow. Yeah, you know, he's super yeah. understated, but he's he's a fucking genius. But it could work. Yeah. yeah, it could work, I think, you know? He'd be the first one I could think of. Yeah, I feel like it just... It's these these mashups between comedy and other genre, other genres. They have worked so well in the past. And obviously, part of the Marvel success is the lighthearted tone and a lot of their movies where... People are cracking up throughout, like when, like you know, Captain America and Endgame is like, "Oh, that's America's ass," and things like that. Or doing, well, I guess, it was first is Paul Rudd, but then Chris Evans repeats it, like, "That is America's ass." Like the, people laughed uproariously. So clearly, it still works. But man, when it comes to comedy and cinema right now, I think in my life we're at the weakest period. Granted, if you, comedy is on podcasts, comedy is on YouTube, comedy is on TV. But when it comes to movies, comedy is nowhere to be found, and. There, there, are lot, there are a lot of reasons as to why, but it just seems like such a, a missed opportunity not to have the comedy genre thriving. Like when the Hangover movies came out like 10 years ago, they did box office like fucking Avengers movies. Like, and clearly people still want comedies, just no one's making them. Yeah, I think I think the problem is that Hollywood has become a little too reliant on algorithm-based stuff. And so comedy is so much more unpredictable than IP. Yeah. It's just it's it's not something they can they can make legitimate claims will make money for sure and will translate globally. Like it just doesn't do those things. Although Netflix's biggest most watched show or original content of last year, which I did not see, was that Jennifer Aniston Adam Sandler like murder, murder mystery. mystery. Yeah. yeah like, I didn't see it, and my little brother saw it and said, dude, like it's unwatchable. But it yeah. got more clicks and more eyeballs than anything else last year, so maybe the comedy's out there. Maybe I'm just being an old fogey and just not watching it. <laughs> yeah, it could be that. But, I mean, I feel like the days of like the big Bill Murray comedy and things like that are, are just not happening right now, and it makes me sad. It makes me – I mean, I, the only upside for me, I guess, right now is that it makes me crave – older comedy so i'm i'm into diving into an old box set like this or whatever just seeking out comedy that i've left behind or never you know dug into myself so that's one i guess slight upside but yeah ultimately it's a bummer i, I want there to be more comedy well, right now anytime you want to tackle may west or wc fields or the marx brothers or whomever I am always game because it seems like in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, you just had these these acts. Like, obviously, in the late 50s, you still got, like, Billy Wilder doing great comedies and Martin Lewis are around. But it seems like, yeah, the golden age of Hollywood just had so many legends that really just just redefined comedy for that era in ways that, like, perhaps the 60s and 70s, like, don't have for some reason. Like, I love the 60s and 70s. In a lot of ways, like, my favorite period of filmmaking is, like, 58 to, like, 72. It's, like, all my favorite movies seem to fall it in that period but there's not a lot of like there's no like Abbott and Costello equivalent from the 1960s so yeah for whatever reason Hollywood was ready to laugh this is like Great Depression era this is World War II it's funny how like the darker things got and the more dire the world appeared to be the more there was a need for comedy the more there was a need for musicals that's the time where people need it the most you really need a laugh and some escapism when you are facing what 
might appear to be an existential crisis. So I just feel like comedy is is always needed and it's always relevant. And I just, I hope that at some point some great writers and directors and actors will find a way to make it fucking soar again in the movies. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a reason why horror has had a nice resurgence in the past, you know, decade. I think horror and comedy both are needed and uh, they come out in times when we are in, at our most dire and and yeah, it's too bad. Make us laugh, Hollywood. That's what yeah. we need right there, now. There's such a great whether you're screaming or laughing, it's just it's a release, and you you, you shake out the willies and, and then you feel good. Well. I've had a blast doing this episode. I hope you'll come back again. Like it's been like a year and a half since we did our um, Bud Bedecker episode, so we've been remiss in our duties um, and uh, tackling some of these old school things. But it's like when it comes to Golden Age of Hollywood, sometimes it can be a little difficult to find people who want to do Golden Age of Hollywood. So as soon as you pitched this, I was like, fuck yeah. And also, more importantly, because I was so ignorant about so much of the work, I love episodes where I get to explore new territory. So anytime you want to come back and talk about any of this shit, I'm totally down. And one of your good friends, Patrick Bromley, he's going to be coming on soon. We've been talking about doing a um, uh, Umberto Lenzi. He's coming back to tackle Umberto Lenzi soon. Ooh, We're going to get wow. that on. But because Fantastic. of your show... I discovered Patrick Bromley and I thought sort of following his work. So maybe it's a way of drawing this to a close. Where can people find you online? What, where, where can people find your shows? And do you have any specific episodes that you're excited about that you want to plug and promote? Um, well, thank you so much again for having me. And I'm totally down for Marx Brothers or WC Fields. We'll look into that for later this year because I've been wanting to do those deep dives. And it's not, again, something that... Uh, we found our niche on pure cinema, and it seems to be movies from the 70s on up is where our audience is the most. I mean, we definitely have done some classic stuff, but it, it doesn't connect quite in the way that I would like on pure cinema. Um, so I'm left wanting to do those older things. So I'm definitely down. Um, in terms of uh, where to find me, I am Bob Freelander on Twitter. That is my most used um, most accessed portal, uh, for finding me. Uh, I'm also on Instagram under Rupert Pupkin speaks. Um, and my website, my website, Rupert Pupkin speaks is ongoing. Um, but the shows are pure cinema on Twitter as pure cinema pod. And that's, um, available everywhere you get podcasts. Uh, and then just the discs is sort of my side project, but it's taken off a little bit in the last, um, three or four months. I, I picked up with a new late, uh, network called rebeller and, um, they've been great about promoting the show and I'm trying to make, continue to make the show better in terms of good episodes. I just dropped one with John Cribbs, who I first heard on wrong reel. So talk about people connecting people through podcasts. Uh, the pink smoke guys, I definitely got to know through your show and your John, show- used to be the official pink smoke podcast for a while <laughs> it was <laughs> yes and that was a and that was because of wrong reel it was, i knew about them because i heard them on wrong wheel well, and they i always, love that the people that i've recorded with but i see everybody kind of like playing in the same sandbox and sharing their toys it just it makes me very happy oh yeah they're just fantastic guys like john cribs has become because of his uh obviously incredible ability to talk movies but also his availability late at night he has become one of my go-to guys for just this and we just did an episode on road games nice which i'm very proud of and i think it's the sexiest posters in movie history if you don't believe me look it up but the poster is erotic very much and a great great film by richard franklin so that would be the one i would point people to recently we also just did uh best of 
the our favorites of 2019 was Stephanie Crawford, another one of my regulars. And uh, speaking of Patrick Bromley, he did a Blu-ray Discoveries episode with me of Just the Discs that I would also recommend uh, people check out. Um, but but thank you again so much for having me on, man. Sorry it's been so long. I love your show. Oh, no, I mean, I like I said, we interact on Twitter almost on a daily basis. Like when I see Absolutely. like you and Marcus and Cribs and everybody like all interacting and all sharing each other's content and like giving each other high fives and like supporting each other in each other's endeavors. That's when you know everything's working the way it's supposed to. Where it's like we're we're all in this together. We're all in this because we fucking love movies and people that have any sort of movie commentary biz of any kind when you're just doing everything in your power to make people aware of what other people are, are up to. I, I, I know my traffic would be one-tenth of what it is if it were not for the support of like the Film 89 guys and so on and so forth. So like we, are all, we're, we all kind of support each other. And, yeah, a rising tide lifts all ships. So I, I love our, our kind of unofficial affiliations that connect us basically at this point like all, all around the globe. It's, it's yeah, a very man. exciting time. And I, people, I can, people can talk about how you know, things seem grim at times, but I'm like, well, but if you if you screen out the toxic side of Twitter and Twitter does have a negative side and you focus on all these diehard, passionate movie freaks, it can seem like this wonderful utopia in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I, I've loved all the connections that we never to make online. It's been a, it's been a ton of fun. Yeah, same here, man. Same here. Excellent. Well, we hope you all enjoyed this episode. Definitely check out some Abbott and Costello flicks. You will have a very good chuckle, and a, 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 I just uh, I can't recommend this stuff strong enough. I start with Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein if you've never seen it, because it's an absolute masterpiece. But, man, you really can't go wrong with any of the movies that we mentioned. And, yeah, Who Done It? Like I said, if you like Tex Avery and you like things like Who Killed Who, Who Done It will absolutely blow your mind. It's well worth rediscovering. But if you need more content in the short term, check out my YouTube channel, Geek with James Hancock. I'm like within kissing distance of hitting 20,000 subscribers. I really hope to, nice. uh, to get up and over that uh, that threshold in the near future. But we uh, can't thank you for listening. As always, we greatly appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.